So chapter 5 is really a continuation from chapter 4, where we discussed the Rebbe's deep perspective and relentless way of thinking and seeing only the depths of a Jew, that be'etzim, be'etzim, a Jew is a holy neshama. That's what a Jew is, be'etzim, everything else else that's on top of him is just chitzonius, it's not the real Jew. And be'etzim, he's a son of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Even if he doesn't feel that way, the Rebbe tried to make it known to these people that they really are first and foremost a holy neshama, a holy Jew. That's their essence, that's their first state. And anything that they've become where they quote-unquote are distant, right? it's quote-unquote distant from a Kaddish Baruch or from Torah, that's fake. That just means they forgot their original way. But the original way, like the Rebbe said to that person who felt like a, a hypocrite, that the whole year he doesn't go to shul, but on Yom Kippur he goes to shul, he felt like a hypocrite, why am I going to shul on Yom Kippur, I'm, I'm such a loser. The Rebbe said, no. During, the, during Yom Kippur, you're a real Jew. During the rest of the year, you're a hypocrite. Because you're really Batsim a Jew, and you're Batsim a Neshama who should be in shul. So this is going to be, this is going to be a, a Hemshech. And part of the Hemshech here, and it's not so clear, but I'm going to just give us a little bit of a Hagdama, is that sometimes, sometimes for us, who are Baruch Hashem from, from Yidin, and we look at, let's say, a non-affiliated or a non-from Jew, however you want to call them in the most positive, nicest way. Of course, they're love, we love them so dearly. When you look at them, it's often easier to be positive and to see them in a good light and to encourage them than it is to see in a good light and encourage the, the from Jews that are you know, on the same playing field as us, but, you know, they would rather spend an hour, you know, learning the Gemara on the Tuesday night and not see the, the Amkas and the Sefer, or, or in ourselves. We're much easier, it, we find it easier to encourage and to see the depth, the beauty, and the Nikudas Tovas of another Jew much easier than it is to find within ourselves. Now, that guy, it's because, you know, his upbringing, and he had this problem and that problem, but me, I, 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 I'm, I should be better than I am. And very often, we don't see the Nikudas Tovos and the positivity within ourselves when we could see it in everybody else. So we have to remember that part of this chapter is going to be about also seeing within ourselves the positive, positivity. Don't let the Yetzirahs trick us into only being positive when we're looking at somebody else, but not when we're looking at ourselves. Because I speak to people all the time, and most often they are harsh on themselves. They're very harsh. For, for a multitude of reasons. It's too many to go, to go into. But they're unfortunately too harsh with their own avoda, their own connection to Kaddish Baruch, their own learning, their own davening. They're negative about it. Whereas by the next guy, they'll be like, yeah, but he's trying so hard. Wow, look at that guy. At least he came to shul. And then when he's speaking about himself, yuck, I didn't daven well today. He can never say, but at least I came to shul. Because he expects more from himself. So we have to be nicer to ourselves. Okay. With that being said, let's start to read. Now, everybody, I don't know if you read or not, um, but some of this is like more basic. We don't have to explain so much, but I'll read fast. We're going to skip some parts. 
Jewish life in Eastern Europe during the 1700s was particularly precarious. Where, where are you? Page 43. Where are you, where are you up to a page? 43. Chapter 5. 40? 43. Okay. Jewish life in Eastern Europe during the 1700s. Okay. Yeah. During the 1700s was particularly precarious amid persistent outbursts of extreme violence directed at whole communities. The Jewish people were still reeling from the shock, from the shock and destruction left in the wake of the Chimli, the Chim, how do you pronounce that? Chimliniki. They always say it very fast. You never really read it. Massacres, which left over 100,000 Jews, unfortunately dead, across the Ukrainian landscape. Additionally, the failed messianic fervor of Shabtai Tzvi, who eventually converted to Islam, dealt a crushing blow to Jewish spirit and morale from Europe to North Africa all the way to the Middle East. It was a rough time in the 1700s. Internally, the Jewish world was also at odds with itself and coming apart at the seams. The social gap between the educated elite and the unlettered masses, the simple Jews, was a seemingly unbridgeable chasm, I think, leaving the majority of Jews to feel spiritually unworthy and incompetent, which is is a problem we're having nowadays as well. People feeling unworthy, spiritually unworthy and incompetent. Relegating the pursuit of God and Torah to the privileged few. They felt that only, only the, uh, the, the high-level scholars are the ones that serve Hashem, and we're like nothings. That's the feeling in the 1700s, a very dark period. Additionally, the Enlightenment was beginning to impact the lives of young intellectuals throughout Europe, causing many to leave religion and community behind in search of vaguely promised universal truths and individual freedoms. So even these high-level scholars sometimes would go off. The simple Jews sometimes were protected from the Enlightenment because they weren't even enlightened enough to be caught by the Enlightenment. But anyway, everywhere you turned, it was rough for the Jews in that time. As a result, both the bodies and souls of the Jewish people were nearing total exhaustion and bordering on breakdown. The great leader and the great healer, teacher and lover of the Jewish people known as the Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, publicly appeared on this fraught historical stage in the middle of the 18th century. Functioning as a spiritual first responder, Hatzalah, the Baal Shem Tov sought to gently uplift the beaten and battered Jews of his time, reviving them from the near-pulverized state, the ultimate optimist, yes? In the face of suffering, he spread joy. In the face of power, he spread peace. And in the humble lives of simple Jews, he saw the highest light and the deepest sparks of divinity. Through a variety of innovative approaches, including songs, storytelling, simple faith, and ecstatic spiritual practices, and probably English books, right? Probably through all these different types of things. The Baal Shem Tov aimed at nothing less than a full-scaled renewal of the Jewish spirit. Rabbi Nachman told people to speak to a Kaddish Baruch Hu in their own language. Of course, daven three times a day in Hebrew, but to speak to a Kaddish Baruch Hu in their own language. Unfortunately, Yaakov, I bet some, that same person might say to you, to talk to Hashem in English? You should speak to him in Lashon HaKadosh, maybe Yiddish. Not in English. But yet, Rabbi Nachman taught, speak to him with your mama Lush, and if that's English, it's English. To accomplish this, the Baal Shem Tev, right? He turned to Kabbalah, the esoteric teachings and the spiritual secrets of Torah inside out. He took Kabbalah of the Arizal and he made it understandable. He brought it down to Lamaisa, sharing with the masses what used to be exclusive to a religious elite, thereby sparking a popular revelation of piety and passion that reverberates to this day. So because the Baal Shem Tov went to places that people wouldn't go, whether to the simplistic 
storytelling and songs, or he went to a place that people didn't want to touch the Kabbalah, and he brought it down, he inspired people. He gave people that chiyas, right? Chayel, to give chiyas. That was what the Baal Shem brought into the world. And a simcha, a simcha sachayim. Doing what people like to do and telling them that it was okay. Not saying, no, you shouldn't do that. You really should go back to the Gemara. That's really important for you. Because that wasn't helping the people. He needed new ways. Let's fast forward almost 200 years to 1951, less than a decade after the horrors of the Holocaust and a few short years after the masses of Middle Eastern Jews had been expelled from their home countries. This was the moment when the Rebbe assumed leadership, Rebbe Rebbe. Similar to the times of the Balshemtiv, spiritual calamity, confusion, trauma, and displacement were, spe- were sweeping the Jewish world. The horrors of genocide and forced expulsion were leaving people with profound theological and theatrical questions. I looked that word up. You know what that means? Theatrical. Anybody know? It's it's questions. It's basically it's att- it's attacks, but answers also so what does it mean? on God Himself. Not religion, but on God himself. Give and take. Why did God, if he's so good, why did he create evil? Right, Those kinds of questions and answers. So it was leaving people with profound theological and theological questions left unanswered. Once again, Jewish spirit and morale were in ruins. We, 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 don't, we don't know. Baruch Hashem, we were living after this time. I mean, I don't, I don't even have my parents or my grandparents in the war at all. And so I don't really hear stories. But there was, we, we hear stories about just the the, the, the spiritual breakdown and the body breakdown of the Jewish people, the exhaustion. In addition to such geopolitical upheaval, internal denominationalism, de- can't even pronounce that word, assimilation and secularization had further unraveled the fabric of the people. For the most part, religious Jews kept to themselves, as did secular and progressive Jews. Left to its own devices, the socio-spiritual chasm would have continued to grow, possibly stretching the seams of the Jewish people to the point of no return. Within this divided time, the Rebbe addressed himself first to his immediate followers. He was the Rebbe of Chabad first, but also to the Jewish world as a whole, seeking to restore purpose, passion, cohesion, and confidence to a broken and fragmented people. Toward this end, the Rebbe came up with the, with a daring and risking strategy which is best summarized by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zatzal, formerly chief rabbi of England, and he said, what was the rabbi's mission? To search out every Jew in love the way they were once hunted down in hate. Strong line. This led him to devise various programs to engage and energize the wider Jewish world outside his own circle of followers and the religious community at large, which we still see today. I see people outside gourmet glot with tefillin, with candles. It's unbelievable. Who else is still following their Rebbe's commands years and years after he passes away? But the Rebbe had a koach, and it was the emes, to bring Jews together with candles, with menorahs, right? Hanukkah's coming soon. You're going to see the menorahs all over the place. On top of the cars. There was a, there was a guy, there's a, you know, we're, Baruch Hashem, we live in a community where there's a lot of a lot of members of Chabad. There's a guy on Central Avenue who has a sukkah up, a little tiny sukkah, and there's a Luvin and Esrug sitting out on outside on his lawn, and he go you see a Lulav, go take it. Go take a Lulav, go eat some food, go in the sukkah. It's there for anybody to take. Any Jew that feels a connection to that to that sukkah, to that Lulav, he can go. 
the Rebbe made it available for everybody. This open-armed approach sought to existentially expand the tent of holiness to make room for every Jew, no matter their background level of knowledge or observance. He wasn't scared of a person's lack of observance. That didn't scare the Rebbe. Like it scares a lot of people nowadays. Ooh, these people aren't from. I don't know if we can, we could be them, be next to them. Rav Weinberger was once, uh, was once talking about how, how nowadays we're so makbid. Um, we're, not, we're so makbid to have our kids in like only the from class with all the same exact type of from kite. He's like, back in the day, whenever that day was, you had, you had Jews going to school, big time Talmud who became big time Talmud Chachamim, going to school with like, with like public school type Jews. They all run class. What were they supposed to do? Or they went to public schools. But now we're so makbid, you know, on, on exactly the, the frumkite, because we're scared of that one kid. No, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to be. It doesn't, we have to just understand that uh, it's not so pashat. And sometimes our fears are not doing us any justice. They're not helping us. They're actually making things worse. If we would be confident Jews and we would teach our children to be confident Jews, then we wouldn't have to be scared if they're playing with a kid who, who's not as religious as them. What are we scared about? If my kid loves Judaism because I give him a nice, happy Judaism and a nice, a nice experience as Shabbos and Yom Tif, and we you know, eat latkes on, on, on Hanukkah, then we're not going to be scared he's going to be enticed by the irreligious kid on the end of the block. Let them play basketball together. Who cares? What are you so nervous about? But when, you're, when, you're, when your system is built on fear and it's built on you know, shoving things down people's throats and it's built on uh, overpowering people and just sit in your place and just learn that thing and do that thing, so then, yeah, then there's also a fear that he might go with the irreligi- irreligious boy because it's much more fun over there and he's being destroyed over here. But the Rebbe wasn't, he wasn't scared. The Rebbe was not scared of people who have lack of observance. From this perspective, it becomes clear that Judaism is not so much a religion as it is a family. You are not a member of a family on account of your behavior. You are a member of a family in an an irrevocable way. The Rebbe was was not at at war with with anybody else. Every Jew, he had all types of Jews come to him. Yet we have sometimes fights between, you know, sects of Hasidis or the Frum and this or the Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. Everybody has, everybody has like a little bit of insecurities. And that creates a problem within the family. He says even the wicked son mentioned in the Haggadah is still part of the family. That's what the Rebbe used to say. The Rebbe used to talk about also the son who, who wasn't at the Seder. Right? There was a fifth son who didn't even come to the Seder who we have to try to be Makarif. The Rebbe would speak about that son. There was a lot of that going on in his day. Of course, it is always unfortunate when family members are estranged but it doesn't make them any less family. And the Rebbe looked at the panemius. He looked at the family. He didn't look at the actions that were estranged. We all have a seat at the table. According to Hasidus, every Jewish soul is essentially pure and incorruptible at its core, and nothing can ever sever the eternal bond with the divine. So what do you look at? Do you look at the, do you look at that incorruptible, corruptible place of a Jew or do you look at his corrupt actions? That's your choice. The Rebbe decided, I'm, not, I'm only going to look at that which is incorruptible. I'm not going to look at mysim actions which they might be corrupt for the time being but they are not eternal. 
the incorruptibility, we could add a few more letters, of a Jewish soul is everlasting. So in halacha, what do you go with? That which is forever or that which is only part-time? You go with the kvias. You go with the rov. You don't go with the miyat. This soul is from the time of Harsinai. It already received the Torah. So yes, in this short span of this person's life, he's doing things maybe not so kosher necessarily. True. And we're not saying that you should go and, and do those things with him. But how do you look at him? How do you look at him? There are certain cases, I'm not going to talk about certain Rishayim who are mamish, mamish doing things that are inappropriate. That's too high of a madrega for us. But, the, but the, we know who we're talking about. It is from that inner point of essence that the Rebbe sought to connect and build up each individual he, he encountered. And this is the whole Indian of the perspective, the positivity bias. He would always look, there's always points of positivity and there's always points of negativity. It's your choice to pick which way are you going to look. Make the right choice. Who's making the choice? Is this your soul making the choice or your body? If you choose to look at the person's body, then your body's making the choice. But if you choose to look at the person's soul, then it's your soul making the choice. And then you're a soulful, you're a soulful person. Then you're, excuse me, then you're at a higher level. Then you're living in an existence. You're, you could be a happy person. How often do, we, do people walk around the street and they look at other people doing things that are not so good and then they become angry and they become depressed and they become sad and jealous maybe even. What, what do you gain by such a mahalach? Look at the positive nature of people. Yes, they might be doing things that are not 100%. Okay. But if you're not, if you're not their rebbe and you're not their mother, so you're not going to go say anything to them. So just look at the positive points and be happy. Be bechazik them in that way. Why did it be so harsh? Let's go weiter. In 1951, Gershon Kranzler came to interview the newly appointed Rebbe on behalf of the Orthodox Jewish life to hear what his plans were for the future. Throughout the course of their conversation, in which the Rebbe laid out many of the core principles he would put into practice throughout the next four decades, he directly addressed this topic of reaching out to non-religious Jews based on an inherent soul connection. It has always been the belief of Chabad that there is not a single Jew, as far as he may seem, or thought himself to have drifted from the center of Yiddishkeit, who does not have some good point. Every Jew has a good point. Some particular mitzvah that by nature or by inclination he may promote. He might see that lulav and say, wow, I really want to shake that. Or a yarmulke, or a tefillin, or tzedakah, whatever it may be. This spark of good in each soul can and must be utilized for the good. So this person is could be 99% bad, 1% good. The Rebbe said, let's work on that 1%. Let's go into that place. Because you'll see that 1% can really take over the entire system. What do you do? The Rebbe asked the man, a young man who came to meet with him. I'm a student university, he responded. I'm studying for a master's degree in education. I too attended university many years ago, the Rebbe replied. We know, we went to Berlin. Somewhat surprised, the young man asked, and what did you study? Theology, right? He's a rabbi, so he probably learned something about religion. No, I studied electrical engineering. The rabbi responded with a smile, which he did, and he was a, he was a baki, an expert in all that. But I prefer to turn on the lights in people's souls. He likes to electrical engineer people's souls. Light them up. 
Seeing the young man's confusion and curiosity, the Rebbe explained that every human being has a soul, a divine spark that burns inside them. That's what the Rebbe saw. Sometimes a person moves away from their inner light. It might even seem that the light of their soul has been snuffed out, but the soul is like a pilot light. It never goes out completely. All it needs is for someone to turn up the flame, to ignite it into a blaze of illumination. This is my goal, to eliminate Jewish life through the soul by brightening and fanning its flame until it burns bright again. We have to see this in other people. We have to see this in ourselves. Here we see the Rebbe stating his goal explicitly, to directly address the Jewish soul on its own terms and help rekindle its fire against all odds. In fact, it was this very belief in grounding in the soul of the Jewish people that inspired the Rebbe to reach out and welcome all who cross his path, whether in person or through one of his many emissaries across the globe. And look what's, look what's going on today. Go to any country in the world, almost, and you have a Jew over there with a nice big beard and a hat who's trying to encourage other Jews and give them a Jewish, uh, a Jewish experience and a kosher meal, and maybe it's filling. And if the guy says, I don't want to put in filling, fine, so have a kosher meal. No, whatever you want. Who knows what's going to light them up? Skip page 48. Of course, if you didn't read it, you should read it. But I want to keep it uh, to a certain time period. Let's go to page 49. In a separate conversation with a group of students, when we're asked, what does a Rebbe do? What's the goal of a Rebbe? So if you'd ask most people, they'd say, to teach Torah. Let's see how the Lubavitcher Rebbe replied. What is a real Rebbe? The Jewish people are like the earth, which contains nature's treasures hidden underneath. One needs to know, however, where to dig. Dr. Freud, Sigmund Freud, right, who we discussed last chapter, dug in the human soul and found swampy waters and mire. He found taivas, he found, right, all this stuff. Dr. Adler, who I'm not sure who he's referring to, found rocks. Contemporary psychiatry searches for ills and traumas that must be uprooted. But when a Rebbe digs, he finds gold, silver, and diamond. That's what a Rebbe is. Of course a Rebbe is a teacher, but because he's teaching diamonds. He's teaching gold. He looks for the good in his Talmidim. That's, that's what he does. That's the way he guides. So we have to be a Rebbe also. We have to be a Rebbe to others. We have to be a Rebbe to ourselves. Very, very important to find gold and silver. That's what we're looking for. When you take, when you take, a, uh, when you take a, uh, a metal detector on the, on the beach, what are you looking for? Treasures. You're only looking for treasures. And when you find like a screw, you throw it away because you're still looking for the treasures. So you're looking at a Jew. Yeah, you might find some uh, screws. But if you're looking for gold, then you're going to throw those screws away and go for the gold. That's how you look at a Jew. That's how we look at ourselves. If you find something negative about yourself, just put it on the side. You want to deal with it? Because sometimes we do have to deal with it. First, find a few pieces of gold. And when you feel good about yourself, or you feel good about the other Jew, you feel confident in other, you know, in the gold and the silver in your life. So then, so then go into that screw and try to work on it. But don't start with the screws. Or you got your screws loose. And then you're gonna then you're gonna come apart. If that's all you're looking for is screws, then you're you're a lost cause. You gotta look for the gold. Every, there's gold there's a, we're beaches, we're mamas, we're filled. It's hard. You might need a Rebbe. You might need an external Rebbe to help you first. That might be true. 
How many people? Have, how many people has Rav Weinberger helped? Uh, Rebbe of, of ours. I mean, that's what he does. He finds the, the tov, the gold and the silver in every person. And what he does, his his genius is that he's able to help others find it within themselves. That's that's a real Rebbe. When a Rebbe teaches you how to find your own gold and silver, ooh, and you just, right? What's better, to give a person tzedakah or to give him a job so he can make his own money? We know. In halacha, it's better to give a person a job so he can make his own money. Teach him a trade is better than giving him money than he does it himself. So a Rebbe not only finds the gold within the Jew, but he teaches the Jew how to become a diamond digger. Our methods and maps of reality determine what we seek and find within ourselves and others. So we've spoken about the depths of the mind and we need to rewire our system in this positive approach in a very deep way that we should be seeing everything in life as half full. And then you'll even look at yourself in that way. Now listen to this. The prevailing values of the, of the day included defining religiosity based on the level of a person's acquired knowledge and practice. Their learning and observance were thus seen to create their connection to God, which is still today. People are basically valued in the from world as their as much knowledge as they have in learning or halacha or if you're a, a mashgiach and you can give over a nice moser shmuz. So then you have value. Then you have value. Right? But if a person doesn't know, he doesn't learn well, so, okay, it's okay. So you're a simple Jew. Like, what kind, what's your value exactly? But we know that that's, that didn't work. Most of Klal Yisrael was not holding at that level in the 17, 1800s. Many people were simple. They weren't able to read. They had to go to work. They didn't have the background. However, Hasidus in general, from the Baal Shem Tov and the Rebbe in particular, stressed that it is the soul that is primary. Hey, I have a soul. You have a soul. The next guy has a soul. We all got a soul. So we're good. Because that's the essence. Even Torah knowledge is external to the soul. Because that's a lavush of the soul. Davening, tzedakah, shaking lulav and esrug, tzitzis, are all external to the essence of the soul itself. So what do we look at? What do we value? Of course we have to honor and respect Hamadei and we want to become if we could. Of course, there's, some, there's, there's a covet. But there's, there's a more basic covet that everybody should get, and ourselves included, because we have a neshama. That's the most honored thing in the entire world, that we have a neshama. There's other layers. Fine. Good. So it's extra covered. But the soul is the essence. Torah study and mitzvah observance are the spiritual tools and language that help express our internal connection to the divine and each other. They're tools. They're emtsa'im. This is something that the, the Torah world is hard for them to believe, that Torah itself is an emtsa'i. We know, those who learn chassidus know, and it's actually more logical in certain ways to say that Torah is a means to connect to God. Torah is not God. God is higher than Torah. I don't know if anybody says that Torah is higher than God, then they have big problems. But if you're just straight logical, God comes first, Torah comes second. Yes? I think, I think it's logical. So therefore, it Viter makes sense in logic that learning Torah and keeping Torah is a means to keep 
God. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't take away from the Torah. Adra, it makes you want to learn more and more and be more excited for Torah because then there's a purpose to it. It's not just so I know details of these halachas. It's so I can know God and I can connect to Him and I can be more divine. But it's ultimately because the soul, the chelak al-kamimal, connected to a Kaddish Baruch, who is the essence. And Torah is supposed to, Torah, learning Torah is supposed to increase our soul, it's supposed to make our soul stronger in that connection to a Kaddish Baruch. That's the way we should look at it. But we each inherently possess this internal connection and it is always present deep down. There is simply no such thing as a bad Jew, contrary to what some may, what some may claim. He might be doing bad things, but he's not a bad Jew because a Jew is defined by his soul, by the fact that he's... How, why are you a Jew? Because you're a Ben Acher Ben from Avram Avinu. And that essential state, you're not bad. What are you bad? You have DNA of Avram Avinu and you have a soul, and the DNA of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. What's bad about that? Your body is doing things that maybe is not 100% okay? Okay, fine. And that's not good and we have to deal with that. But that doesn't make him a bad Jew in his Jewishness, in his essential Jewishness, his DNA, his his soul, his DNA of Avram and Yaakov is 100% pristine. That can't be changed ever. It cannot be changed. People don't recognize that. There are just different dimensions of goodness when seen in the right light. In this spirit, the Rebbe lovingly addressed all Jews on either extreme. To secular Jews, he essentially said, you're not as secular, secular as you think. You have an ancient tradition and an indomitable point of infinite holiness within you that yearns to serve, sing, and soar. This was exactly the kind of accepting, affirming, and empowering message that those estranged from Jewish life and faith needed to hear. God and Torah were already inside them. They just needed to, quote-unquote, turn on the light, so to speak. And the same was with us. Sometimes we grew up in a certain way, and it became dim. The ways of Torah, the ways of Avodah, the ways that we were taught became dim. And we become a little bit harsh, become a little bit negative. Some people, even angry, unfortunately. Some people burnt out. But we have to realize that there's a, there's a light inside of us. And just because we were taught in one way, that doesn't mean that that's the essence of Yiddishkeit. There's a deeper essence. And it's pure. And it's holy. And there's nobody who cannot, con- who cannot connect in a beautiful, uplifting, healthy, happy, and strong way to his soul and to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. It just might be that someone tried to light your pilot light with the wrong type of you know, lighter or something. But everybody has that, has that flicker, and if you find the right, whatever, gasoline, right, we can light ourselves up. Okay, let's skip uh, this page 50 over here. Let's jump to, uh, let's go to page 53. Soul Maven. Rev- I don't know how to pronounce this. Monia, Manya, Monasazin was a Chabad Chassid and a successful diamond merchant. During a private audience with Rav Shalom Dovber, <coughs> um, the Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe praised several individuals who appeared on the surface to be simple and unremarkable. 
This, surpri- this surprised Rav Monia. When he voiced his surprise, Rav Shalom Dovber replied, they possess special qualities. I don't see it, says Ramonia. And with that, with the conversation, and with that, the conversation moved on to other topics. At a later point in the conversation, Roshan Dovber suddenly asked Ramonia whether he had a pouch of diamonds with him. He was a diamond dealer. Ramonia took out a pouch and displayed the diamonds, pointing out the incredible quality of one specific stone. The Rebbe remarked, I don't see anything special about it. Ramonia implied, for that, one must be a maven to discern, right? In between the different levels, the different colors. Everybody who bought a, a ring for their wife, you know, for their wife knows there's different colors and there's different levels of the ring, right? Even though we're like, what's the difference? A ring's a ring. Cubic cornea is just as nice as diamond, no? Everybody, all the guys are like, yeah, 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 yeah. But it doesn't go that way. The ladies know, they know, a diamond is a diamond. Roshalom Dovber responded pointedly. When it comes to seeing the special qualities of a Jew's soul, one must also be a maven. So a maven, <coughs> a bucky, is able to see qualities of something or have an understanding of something that other people don't have. He's a bucky. One of the important points, important qualities and characteristics of a maven of a certain item, an Indian. If you have a maven, for whatever reason, in sneakers, he's a sneaker maven. He knows all the ins and outs of the Nikes and the Adidas and all this stuff. And he can tell you the different years and different colors, and you're like, who cares? When a certain shoe would come his way, and he, he was asked to analyze it, he would spend hours with every detail. Because when you're a maven of something, you're willing to take the time to see every detail and every light and make sure you don't make a mistake. Right? Comes, what comes with mavenness is a patience. It's not just a patience. It's a patience that comes from a desire to know everything about this thing. That's my expertise. So when Mshol Dov Ber and the Rebbe and other tzaddikim and, and a Rebbe, Rebbeim, look at their Talmidim, they want to know everything about this Talmud. They love him so much. They want to know every quality of this person. They take the, they're patient. They're willing to wait to see what is going to become of this person. And they're a maven. They know essentially he's good and they're willing to take the time to allow that to come, to come out. Anyone can make a snap judgment based on the surface, external markers, such as outwardly expressed learning and religious observance. This guy learns, this guy doesn't learn, this guy does this. That's very simple, but very shallow at the same time. Like, I love it. I love it. You know, when people come and they say, or I, I heard such a line once, and it happens all the time. People judge like this all the time. You know, you know that guy over there? He's a really good davener. You know how I know? Because he shuckles a lot. That's right. He's a good davener because he shuckles. And if I would told you what he's thinking about when he's shuckling... Over Ishman Esri, he's thinking about Paris. He's thinking about, you know, his breakfast or anything else. If you see beyond the shuckle, what's a shuckle? It's an external act. Maybe it has Kavana, maybe it doesn't. But you can't define anybody's davening based on a shuckle. That's. What do you say? Shuckle, you shuckle, I don't know. What's that line from? 
Oh, Hashor. Hashor. Oh, oh, I didn't hear you say that. You stole the ox. Yeah, I got it. A shuckle. An ox's shuckle is a shuckle. Yeah, I got you. But a Jew is like a diamond, which can be buried and covered in dirt and sediment on the outside while at the same time shining brightly on the inside. The way you view others determines in large part what you see in them. And a lot of times you're willing to see other deeper. It goes both ways. Sometimes <coughs> sometimes you can only see the good in others if you see the good in yourself. And sometimes you need to see the good in others to then finally see the good in yourself. Each person has to know himself. Are you focused on the outer coal or the inner flame that is just waiting to be kindled into a holy fire? That's, 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 our, that's our goal. That's our goal. To see the, to see the, to see the MS. Not be confused by the negativity. Anytime you hear negativity, anytime you hear negativity, you have to stop and say, one, one second, let's analyze this for a second. Is there any positivity here? Is this negativity even true? And there's no positivity? And if there is positivity, doesn't the positivity outweigh the negativity? Whether it's in other people, whether it's in ourselves, we need to become negativity aware, negative aware, right? Conscious of these times. Just like a person who's working on his anger, right? He's told, listen, you have to, first of all, you have to catch yourself being angry. You need to be aware that you're angry to even start, right? You're a person who's, who's naturally and constantly always getting angry. He doesn't even realize he's angry. It's just his way. So first you have to become conscious, aware of that state. We need to find and become aware of the times we're negative, wherever it may be, whether it's, you ask a guy, what's the weather today? He answers, that's probably going to be raining. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you, why are you so negative? And even if it is going to rain, so what? So what? So it throws off your day? Oh, because there's traffic. And I'm going to get wet. Negative, negative. Look at the positive. Well, however, whatever positive you want to look at. That without the rain, you'd have no food. <laughs> you know, relax. Whatever. Find the positive in, in things. Dance in the rain. So we have to become more conscious of the, of, of the negativity we have in our lives and also be conscious of other people's negativity. Not to, not to um, try to change them, but when you hear other people's negativity, it'll become, make, make you more sensitive to yourself. We're not looking to change anybody right now. We're looking just to change ourselves. Okay. You know, a lot of it's, it's, it's similar. It's, of course, it's Kadai to, to read the whole chapter, but uh, I want to keep it till 1045. So, Mitzvah Shem, next week we will continue with uh, chapter 6. Any last uh, Thank questions? You. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you. Good, Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys.